Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Canada will send heavy artillery to Ukraine. Over the past weeks, we've been in close contact with President Zelensky uh, since the very beginning, and we're very responsive to what it is that they need most specifically. Their most recent request uh, from Canada is to help them with heavy artillery, because that's what uh, the phase of the war is in right now. At least eight candidates have met the first deadline to have their names appear on the final ballot in the Conservative leadership race. On convention day, when this is all the marbles are on the line, you know, you could have a compromised candidate emerging from somewhere uh, because of the polarization that's taken place between the Polyev and, uh, and Shere camps. And Canada will not be following suit as the United States drops its mask mandate on airplanes. Any decision we make and we've been making over the last two years throughout the COVID pandemic is focused on ensuring that we protect everyone's health and safety, and it's based on science and data. It's Wednesday, April 20th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster, Dan Legere. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Mark. Prime Minister Trudeau said yesterday that Canada will send heavy artillery to Ukraine to support its efforts in in fighting back against the Russian invasion. Uh, so this is the latest in a series of measures that, that Canada is undertaking to support Ukraine. There's been aid. There have been uh, other measures of support that have, have been sent that way. Um, what do you think about this and, and about the, the totality of what Canada is doing? Because there's a lot of debate about how far Canada and other NATO countries should go. And of course, yesterday there was also a meeting of of NATO leaders uh, hosted by U.S. President Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Well, there are kind of two threads to that, Mark. There are There is the question of what Canada should do and also the question of what Canada can do. Um, the Ukrainians have been appealing desperately for heavy weapons like these artillery uh, pieces that uh, the federal government is now talking about sending to Ukraine. Um, these big guns are, you know, they'll, they'll I, I remember working with the Army at one point and was told they could fire a, a shell into a bedroom window in a house 22 miles away. So uh, these are very, very capable weapons that would make a difference in the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, but Canada only has 37 of these weapons. Um, and, you know, it has other smaller guns, which probably would be useful too. But um, these big pieces allow uh, an army to stand many, many kilometers away and bombard other positions. So the Russians have a similar weapon. Uh, this, this particular gun is used in Canada, the United States, uh, Australia, and some other allied countries, I think maybe India. Uh, which isn't an ally, but a fairly friendly com- country, and uh, they are um, capable weapons, but they're in the millions of dollars each. We only have 37. Canada will then likely have to go out and replace those, and uh, the, it could be a slow process, but it uh, does show, I think, the increasing urgency of countries around the world who want to come to the aid of Ukraine as things get worse and worse there seemingly by the day. Yeah. 
All right, let's turn to the conservative leadership race. And um, there are eight candidates that have met the th- first threshold, the, the first hurdle in the race. Um, and, you know, I think the the race is centering in on Pierre Poilievre, on Jean Charest, maybe Patrick Brown. I'm not sure uh, this, certainly anything's possible, but the polls seem to indicate uh, those are the front runners uh, and one of them. And most likely Poiliev at this point is likely to become the conservative leader. What's your sense after the first deadline has been met? Well, I don't think there's any great surprises in terms of, um, you know, who has made the cut. Uh, You know, there are people who were talking about running who were fundamentally unserious candidates. Uh, as most major parties do attract candidates like that for leadership because of uh, people seeking to make a profile or, uh, you know, make some political point in the public that they uh, had otherwise been struggling to do. Uh, but, I mean, there are some clear uh, favorites in it, including Poiliev and uh, Charest and Patrick Brown, Leslie Lewis, I suppose, to some degree. Um, but, you know, there is a difference, again, you know, between a race for conservative votes and a race for votes from Canada at large, Canadians at large. And, uh, you know, there's some strange uh, anomalies. I think the polls that are being done now suggest that, you know, Jean Charest is more popular among non-conservatives than he is among conservatives, and that Polyev is vastly more uh liked by conservative party members than by other Canadians. And so these these questions raise really difficult issues, I think, for conservative party members who have not yet made up their minds uh, about whether they want to take the risk uh, of a sort of crowd-pleasing, attack-trained character like Poiliev or a more moderate uh, sort of statesman-like figure of, uh, of Jean Charest. Which, you know, Mark, when it comes right down to it on convention day, when this is all the marbles are on the line, you know, you could have a compromise candidate emerging from somewhere uh, because of the polarization that's taken place between the Polyev and uh, and Charest camps and Brown camps so far. So, uh, you know, we're far from the end of it. It's a really interesting campaign. And, uh, uh, yeah, Polyev seems to have the lead now, but there's still a, a fair wa- a bit of water to go under that bridge. Yeah. Yeah, and it, what what could change in this race? Because there is a feeling like like Poiliev has the advantage, and that and that something would have to change for him not to win the leadership. Uh, what what are what are the kinds of things that could happen? Because there's still, as you say, there's still a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that a lot could change. I mean, obviously they're firing dirt at each other already. Yeah. I mean, the uh, yeah, the Oppo research folks are working hard in all the major uh, campaigns to find dirt and garbage on uh, on the other uh, candidates, and I mean, as well, trying to find whatever they can find out about the Trudeau government while they're at it. But uh, after a while, this gets um, you know, it starts to reduce the dividends that it's paying because you're just damaging everybody after a while with this constant uh, sort of mudslinging and uh, rhetoric. So at some point, they're going to have to get away from that and get into providing alternatives that Canadians actually want to embrace. If they're going to break uh, the liberal hold on power, 
Uh, it's going to need more than just making up crazy things off the sub-indexes of reports like this so-called pickup truck tax, uh, you know, and, and get into something more uh, tangible and something that will really bring about a response from voters. Mm. All right. Finally, we learned yesterday that there will no longer be a mask mandate uh, when you're traveling on an airplane in the United States. It'll be up to each individual traveler uh, what to what to do. Uh, but uh, Canada and the Canadian government reiterated yesterday that everyone will have to wear a mask on Canadian planes and trains. Uh, so the mask mandate, which has obviously been the subject of, of some debate in certain areas, um, is continuing in Canada. That is actually one of the one of the few federal mandates for all the uproar over over demands for Justin Trudeau to end federal mandates. Most of the measures, of course, that have been put in place to prevent the spread of COVID have been provincial measures, not federal ones. But this is one of them. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think they're being prudent by extending this mandate. It doesn't provide a a terrible burden on anybody. My neighbor was in Mexico and he told me they had to wear masks all day while they made their way back from the south. But, uh, you know, they they felt safer by it. And, uh, you know, if, if you can take your mask off when you're flying to Disney World, well, take it off when you get over the U.S. But the point is that uh, the Canadian government, I think, is acting prudently. We're in the sixth wave, which they just announced or confirmed this time last week, uh, a sixth COVID wave, which is, uh, you know, just seems to be spreading like wildfire everywhere. So why would we suddenly just drop everything now? Um, you know, when, when there's a lot of danger out there to anyone who's, uh, who wants to fly. So, uh, you know, uh, we're all used to very, very strict rules and regulations when we get on an airplane, when we go into an airport, we're subjected to lots of restrictions and, and, uh, and limits on our so-called liberties and freedoms. And uh, so we shouldn't be surprised that this goes on a little longer. I mean, I think the U.S. that mask mandate was struck down by a judge, so that could be revived in some way as well, I suppose, maybe in a different form. But uh, there's still a lot of COVID out there. It's massively contagious. And uh, if the federal government is doing something it believes is prudent to protect travelers, uh, I don't see anything wrong with it. And uh, I have almost no sympathy at all for people who are complaining that they can't put on a mask to fly from Montreal to Toronto or something like that. Yeah. All right, Dan, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Okay, Mark. That's Dan Legere, longtime political writer and broadcaster. They're fighting for the values that underpin so many of our free democratic societies, which is why the world needs to continue to step up, why Canada is continuing to stand with Ukraine. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, John Iveson argues it's time for Canada to be more than a covert friend to Ukraine. Iveson writes, Canada has made much of its willingness to sanction Russian individuals and strengthen Ukraine's position at the negotiating table through every means available. Officials point to discussions held between Volodymyr Zelensky and Justin Trudeau and between Ukraine's foreign minister and Melanie Jolie. The government prefers to keep those discussions in the background, hinting at wheels within wheels. But if the government is wielding covert influence, it is not sharing that information with its own senior bureaucrats who complain privately about a policy that is tentative, opaque, 
and ponderous. In the Toronto Star, Heather Schofield argues, Elon Musk's attempt to buy Twitter should be setting off alarm bells in Ottawa. Schofield writes, It has all the makings of a juicy corporate takeover saga. But this is not just a soap opera. It's a stealthy run at any attempt to dilute the scope of social media platforms. Those platforms have taken some initiatives to self-regulate, partly in an attempt to get out ahead of regulation. But Elon Musk's push to take over Twitter suggests even the tendency towards self-regulation goes too far. It has set off alarm bells in the American civil rights community who fear for the fate of minorities of all kinds. It should set off alarm bells in Ottawa, too. In an editorial, the Toronto Sun argues federal climate targets have become a farce. The Sun writes, The Trudeau government released its official emissions report for 2020 last week, which confirmed Canada failed to meet its emissions target. This is the ninth consecutive time since 1988 that Canada's federal governments have set an emissions target and failed to achieve it, five times by Liberal governments, four times by Conservative ones. It's time to abandon this farce and replace it with an honest system that reports on reductions only after they have been achieved, not before. Now here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will be in the Waterloo area in Ontario, where he will meet with local families to discuss investments from the budget in housing. He will also speak with the media and meet with leaders from the Muslim community. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino will speak about the budget in Richmond, British Columbia. Minister of Seniors Kamal Kara will be in Toronto to speak about the budget. Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra will speak about green initiatives in the budget in Yellowknife. Northern Affairs Minister Daniel Vandal will make a funding announcement in Winnipeg. And NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will be in Montreal to speak about housing. He will also attend an anti-hate town hall. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, April 20th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.